Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Oh my word, in my old age, Pia, I've got to tell you, uh, well, I'm not that old, I guess, but as, as, <laughs> as I mature into a wonderful wine, and it may be COVID as well a little bit, but I've become a bit interested in bird song. <laughs> bird song, yeah. So my rock and roll lifestyle continues, but I was out in the garden today, it's beautiful sunshine, and in, in the creeper on the house, a robin was singing its little heart out. It was wonderful. And you just know spring is coming spring then. Spring is coming and it yeah absolutely he's he was just, up there la 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 <laughs> exactly he's, he's out loving there. it loving it so i'm feeling very spring is sprung here and um, yeah it's beautiful i know exactly that moment you know the one well an hour later it was it was snowing but it did stop again but either way <laughs> but the robin was having a lovely moment and he gave me one as well so that's a good segue because robin is a bit about our, <laughs> our guest. Good Lord. I don't know how you managed to do that, but that was uh, that extraordinary. Is, that is literally a complete chart. I can't believe you spotted that. <laughs> yeah, full marks, 10 out of 10, Peer for that. Yes, yeah, so our guest, Robin Hutchinson, I'm so excited to have him on the show because I met Robin 20 years ago when I was the director of marketing and I had I held all, the, all our budget and we had a meeting with, him, with Robin um, who was the chief fundraiser for Guide Dogs for the Blind, which is a really big charity in the UK, and with our CEO. And it was sort of one of these meetings where it was sort of quite, he had to pitch and we had to be very serious and sort of very, you know, mm, is this going to be good value? Are we going to be able to, you know, blah, blah, we can use it for promotion and things. And we broke for coffee and Robin leant over to me and said, I think it's going rather well, don't you? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought this, that is perfect because it's just that absurdity, the, the sort of just the pure, inappropriately, brilliantly appropriate <laughs> wackiness was it just it just tickled me. And I was giggling and giggling in that meeting after that. So um, and I thought, well, we have to we have to do this. And he was a wonderful partner, always true to his word. And uh, it was a great partnership that we had with him. But um Anyway, we'll hear his story now, which is um, a many splendid thing and uh, really far more interesting even than his very interesting persona might might portray. So um, let's go and hear. Can't from wait. Now. I bet you can't. I bet you can't. Let's hear from this Robin, having heard from the other Robin earlier. <laughs> Robin, a really warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for coming on to We Not Me. A pleasure. A real pleasure. So, Rob, I'm going to start by torturing you with the conversation starter cards. I'm actually going to pick one at random. I'm going to do something a bit different this time. I'm going to cut the pack. Okay. You would never guess, but I... It's a red card. You'd never guess, but I... Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, that's a really... God, that's horrible. You'd never guess, but I um, failed at skiing once, nearly skiing off the edge of a mountain by accident. Did you manage to avoid injury or was that... Um... Yeah, I steered into a fence. It was my very first time at skiing. I've been taken up by a chum and uh, he was explaining... I mean, classic me, he was explaining all the things you shouldn't do. I was bored very quickly and just set off on the slope that he'd advised me, don't go down that slope, we'll start a gentle one. And I just couldn't control myself and fell forward, shoveling snow into my mouth and fortunately managed to see that the edge was coming and steered my hands straight into a fence. <laughs> I, I, get, I, I have an idea that that metaphor will um, serve us well in the rest of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Mouthful of snow. <laughs> so, Robin, you and I haven't met, and, and I'd love to know a little bit about you. So just 
take take us a little bit into your world and and tell us how you got to who you are today. Yeah. Um, so I regard myself as a remarkably lucky human being, and that opportunities come my way. And you know, there's a whole discussion around you know how does luck happen. I, I don't believe you think luck. I think that's uh you know, I think you can put yourself in situations where things all happen. But I think that, you know, one has to be incredibly conscious of the fact that I've been fortunate, lucky, that I was born into a good family, into a good part of the world, with a good education and all of those things I contributed nothing to. I mean, that was a matter of geography and parent. Um but since then, just weird things happen to me. And I, I, there's a part of my brain that's rewired uh, badly in, in as much as, generally speaking, as you get older, the ability to say no gets stronger. Experience going, done that before, and it was a big error. You should say no in this situation. And my brain is working hard at that while my mouth and my stomach go, yeah, okay. And as a result of that, my life continually is reinventing itself. And at any point when somebody says, I mean, my kids, of which there are five, hate it if somebody says, what does your dad do? Because they have to go, I've no idea. And the reality is I have to say that still. What is it you do? Um, I think the best, William Blake said, you know, do you wake each morning with your fingers on fire for the tasks that lie ahead? And I think that's the life, if we are lucky, we can have, that you wake up and there is something in the day that you know, yeah, it doesn't mean every day is wonderful and every day is without challenge and every day is brilliant. What it does mean is that actually there are things in your life that tell you you're excited. Because, And I just seem to have this real fortune that I can make those things happen. So a lot of what I do is imagine ideas and go, let's do it. And as a great friend says, the weird bit for you, Robin, is you think of stupid things and then you do them. <laughs> uh, you know, most people will separate and say, well, stupid idea, but I'm never going to do it. Or I'm really good at doing things, but I never think of anything. And I'm kind of like, everybody, this, and I am a magpie. There's no two ways about it. You know, I mean, anybody who sits in a team meeting with me or any foot will know that I've got an extremely low boredom threshold and the people have got to work out how to present something to me in the shortest space possible while juggling and fire eating. Um, and that I'm quite likely halfway through to go, oh, I know what we could do, and it'll be nothing related to anything. <laughs> Brain's been going. Yeah, okay, Robin. Let's let, let's wait till that burns out, and then we'll get back to what we we're supposed to be talking. <laughs> so, um, what do your children's dad? What what does your children's dad do? Um, so. I, uh, along with some others, started a community interest, a not-for-profit organisation called The Community Brain in 2010. And that was started on a very basic principle. Everybody is brilliant if they're given the help and support to be brilliant. And the saddest thing that I witness in lives are people living grey existence. I have seen talented, enthusiastic individuals lose those passions because of situation. And some of that situation, that's to, you know, separate out. Some of that is life. Some of it, like at the moment, can be cost of living and all sorts of bits and pieces. But in a work environment, I witness it more often than not because people are overmanaged. And I always think it's quite interesting that if you, if you speak with your hands, and I tend to quite a lot, if you use the word manage, you automatically do it. <laughs> kind of, I can compress this, I can manage it. And I... It's really sad to see people who 
who's who who've lost that drive and that energy. And what we do is in our language is create playgrounds for adults. How do we make those spaces, those moments that allow people to reconnect with joy and with passion? When you're a kid, I suspect every one of us at some point in a playground put our coat over our head and ran thinking we could fly. And I think our job is to give people back that feeling. You won't physically leave the ground, but you can in your head. And what we witness is people getting engaged and involved with projects and with things, and they'll fly. They'll show their best. They will become these people. And, of course, that then impacts on the way they go back into the work environment, the family environment, because nobody can behave well and to their best if they're unhappy. And, you know, we've always said, you know, if you look at the photographs of our events and things, people are laughing. And in a moment of laughter, people can change the world, their minds. Nobody's ever changed their minds with their arms folded. <laughs> if you sit in a meeting and they're like, you've got to people in the wrong state. So you've got to get people into a place of, okay, I can relax. And then it's not forcing people. People will go as far as they want to go. But sometimes you've got to be there like the door and just say, I know it's nerve-wracking, but do step out. So at the moment, we're involved in so many different things across. We're working with Southwestern Railways and National Rail on reimagining the potential role of stations in the community. You know, actually could, given what COVID has done and a change in the working patterns, actually can stations be these fulcrums and moments of community and business activism. So we've got projects. We're looking at um, food supply and how we can, we've started two community kitchens. We've got the Farm of Futures, which is how you farm ideas out of communities and support them delivering it. Uh, we have the Museum of Futures and the Museum. Basically, we come up with stupid names and work backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell tell us about the um, the the Lost Gloves of Seething and the and Ski Sunday. These are the two that in my mind that I've one of which I participated in. So, the Lost Gloves of Seething was a very very simple premise, which was. Anne, who is the most wonderful person in my life, and I, you know, in another life, I must have been the most beautiful human being because I've ended up with Anne in this one. Um, and we were out one day and there was just a glove on the floor. And I just said, you know, I wonder how many people lose a glove. And again, as most people would go, and now we'll move on. And, and I was, yes, move on to something else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was like, take a photo of it and I'm going to put it up on Facebook and say, if you see a glove, let me know. And the first time it lasted about six months people going i've seen a glove i've seen a glove and these and i always start glove watch the lost gloves of seeding and we will record each year between the 1st of december and the 31st of january how many gloves people spot all around the world and we get them from australia we get them from america and we get them from europe tom hanks took part one year but we this year i think we got a new record of over two thousand lost gloves found and we put it into a big sort of picture it is purely a piece of nonsense, but what's amazing is the way people decide to play along and the impact it has. People say it gives me a reason to leave the house. It gives me a different aspect when I'm walking down streets. It helps in the darker months to feel there's a... I'd love to go, yeah, well, that was the rationale immediately when we thought that was... <laughs> of course, clearly, it's just, I think there's something weird here. And people take it the way they want to take it and i think that's the big bit about true 
engagement is that everybody must be able to write a sentence for themselves in that story. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit, and it doesn't matter if it diverts where... You know, I love hearing people describe what we do because it's never the words I'd use, but they're passionate about it, and it's their view of what we do, and it's more valuable than my view of what we do because they own that, and it's their permission. We've got an expression, permission to be brilliant. People who are listening to this won't automatically know, but I look like an extra from The Lord of the Rings, and therefore I'm kind of quite identifiable in a street scene. And I get people come up to me and go, do you know what I've always wanted to do, Robin? And I, I say, oh, the first of all, they go, are you Robin Hutchinson? At which point, quite often, I want to go, nope, I get this a lot. No, you got uh, me wrong. I'm an extra from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm what would happen to Hagrid when he gets really old. Um you know what well, I've always wanted to do? And I said, no, I've never met you. And they go, I've always wanted to do this. And I go, well, you should try. And they go, oh, thank you. And I want to know what we've done in our lives, that it needs validation from somebody you don't know to do a thing you dream about. You know, there's something tragic going on there in our lives. And so this permission to be brilliant is one of the things that we try and do, which is to give people that safe space, that support, to know that if they try something and fall over, there are people around who will pick them up and just say, well, okay, we tried and it worked, or, and it failed, and what did we learn? Because as we all know, you get far more out, sadly, from failure than you do out success. And I think there's something there about enrolling people into something that's uh, that's that's got a lot a real spirit attached to it. I remember, you know, watching Dan's comments because he on Facebook several years ago, and re- and asking him what the hell is this thing that you keep taking pictures of gloves and so forth. And then I found myself this summer, you know, on a bike ride, and I found I found a glove, and it was some biker's glove that had got lost on a trail in about thirty three degrees. So we don't have too many of them at this time of year. But it was such a, and I took the photo, sent it to Dan, stick this on it. It's going to, it's going to end up. And this, you're right. We all want to be part of something. And in that, it enables a little bit of brilliance to happen for the people that are participating. And I think that's what's so powerful. And what, what you organize is something that's actually so simple. I mean, finding a glove is not that difficult to do, but certainly not in, in Britain. Or in Europe, but it so therefore it, it it's open to everyone. It is as long as you can, you have vision. You're going to you you can take part in it. Really, that, that that other bit of being able to opt in or out. You know, people who don't get it. Some people get quite angry. You know, what's all this about? Da 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 da. As though it needs to be just. And, and I'm fascinated. You know, uh, we're witnessing it particularly at the moment through our politics. Is if, if we don't understand something, we can't leave it alone. Somehow we've got to be against it or for it. And not, there are people walking around the streets spotting gloves and it doesn't hurt me at all. And I don't have to do it. And I could just turn that part of my brain off. And now we've got to, bloody glove hunters. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little bit like <laughs> I, yeah, another tribe, and I, I didn't even know I was in this tribe. I'm in the non glove hunters now. Yes, it, it it's a little bit like um, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married, isn't it? But the same, same thing. Just yeah, just fine. Don't participate. So I think what you described 
There is something about a mind that filters these crazy ideas. The ideas waft through on the waters of our mind. And most of us have very big mesh and, oh, they'll let them go downstream. You, you catch it. Have you, have you looked back and said, you know, what's, what's happened in your life to lead to this point of the way you, where you just approach things in a slightly different way and look out for these ideas that are going to have an impact on people? I think that I don't have a very good edit button. And, and when we talk ideas as a group, I had a classic example yesterday where it's very easy for me to enter lecture mode. I've had an idea. This is the idea. Let's do the idea. Thank you, everybody. We're all agree. And there is, a, as you well know, there's a lovely expression, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. And the reality is you've got to work in a way where everybody knows they can contribute and be valued in what they're doing. So quite often the way I've learned to work is to go, this is roughly what I'm thinking normally I've got an entire plan in my head, but I'm not going to say a plan. If I say a plan, then everybody's going, right, we need to understand and react to the plan. It's the plan. That, so I'll just give a vague, this is what I'm thinking about. And then quite often I'll go, and I'm now, and I'm, I play to my, uh, I use my, my apparent lack of attention to detail and, um concentration levels to go and i'm going to walk out at this point and i'm just going to leave you to chat about it and when i come back let's see where we've got to and most people who've worked uh, alongside and with over the years will know that that is total permission to come up with the stupidest things you could possibly think of and then we will slowly things will filter but there are some people in life who want to pin ideas down straight away the hot air balloon of an idea has gone up and they've got to puncture it before it starts What's the health and safety on this going to be? Um, and you know, you've got to almost try and liberate. It. And yesterday we had a classic example of, of it. And I had to come back into it to kind of go, yeah, well, you can appreciate there will be difficulties attached to this. But before we go down that avenue, let's have the game because the game where it comes from. And we've been made, we've made ourselves far too serious and therefore we won't play the game. I think it is that bit around and that's why we call it playground for adults to to do things where you don't have the responsibility initially to have to deliver i did a workshop for some health leaders and there were some fabulous cynics sitting in the room you know i mean death by workshop it's the you know great news everybody we found some post-it notes um you know, it's, it's, oh, and i loathe the workshops uh, you know i mean i am the first to go right not playing anyway and the, one of the things was to take them to a place in 10 years time where actually they mentally knew they didn't hold any responsibility anymore because they weren't going to have to deliver it of course, the impact of that is you start, when you've done it, drawing it back to today and tomorrow. Some of this stuff we could actually be doing. Whereas if we have talked about today and tomorrow, they would have based their thoughts in what they were currently doing, why it was going to be difficult to change. And I think that the joy is taking people to this place of absurdity. So Surbiton Ski Sunday is a classic example of that, where this started because... I used to say to people, what do you like about living in Surbiton? And they would almost invariably say, oh, it's brilliant, Robin. 16 minutes to London, 16 minutes to the countryside. And it struck us one day, if you describe where you live by the speed you can leave it, there's a really interesting psychology going. 
And what could we do to get people to go, oh, come to us this weekend. We're only 16 minutes from you. We're only so bring people in. And Slutensky Sunday was one of the early manifestos. Like, basically, this was democratizing of skiing. Skiing, as we know, is primarily for the well-to-do. You go to a place where there's snow, you put wood on your feet, you ski down the snow. What happens if you reverse the science and you put ice on your feet so you can ski on any surface? So we created Slutensky Sunday. We're 11 years, 12 years into this project now. People come fly from Europe to participate in this piece of utter nonsense where we shout, wave at bus drivers and all sorts of associated, and they play. And if you see the film and footage of it, people are just laughing at the absurdity of what... But it's made people change their attitude to where they live because they're suddenly saying, come to us this weekend. And there was a really interesting... uh, The leader of the council, the ex-leader, used to have a sort of PowerPoint you know, 7,000 slides talking about the uh, demo- demographics of the borough and future projections. And it was basically, you know, if Kingston carries on as it is, uh, it's just going to feel a uh, smell of lavender and urine because everybody's going to be 133 years old. In Surbiton, suddenly, there's a change from the profile of people. And when you, we spoke to the estate agents and said, you know, why, why are you? They say, we're, we're young families and young professionals coming in. And when we ask them why, yes, the train is good. Yes, there are good schools here. But so many of them mention the sense of community they've experienced when they've come to events. Yeah. And that, you know, you can change things and give people hope. And, and I, Robin, I, I've never asked you about this, but Surbiton, of course, is the archetypal suburban... Yeah. It's treated with humor. People, you know, live in Surbiton, two point three kids, and a, and a Mondeo. So you, yeah. you're you're sort of really going into the heart of the beast there, aren't you? And, and this isn't taking something that is got sort of quite a nice reputation to start with. You've really started with the sort of legendary suburban yeah. dullness, and and to transform that. So, well, it you know it, we are. You're right. It's a shorthand suburban. And I see, I really challenge the sense of what the so we, we've given the suburbs a really bad name. We've gone cities lively and bright and beautiful, and the countryside is green and fantastic, and the suburb grey. You can get to both of them in 16 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look at the invention of this country, you look at the creativity, you look at the entrepreneurship, and most of it will happen in and around the suburbs. The trouble is, we don't recognize it there. We wait till it goes onto a big stage, and then we applaud and go, oh, see, it's. So we are in the middle of a project called Reappraising the Suburbs, which is looking at the role of suburbs. COVID, we know, made people think and refresh their relationship with where they live and the way in which they work. And as a result of that, there is far more empathy and understanding of where you live and the importance of small shops. And the you know, there's a whole new language developing around this. Now, we'll talk about the UK, but I suspect it's true in a lot of other places. In what will have to be a recovering economy, why are you only using two of the three assets? Why aren't we using the suburbs for what they're great at? Innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship, ICE, as we put it. And you know, we're doing a lot of work to highlight those things. So at the moment, we're doing a big study on uh, industrial estates using one of our local industrial estates. Because industrial estates, similarly, nobody says, oh, I'm so lucky where I live, I'm near an industrial estate. Because we've just got still this image of boiling horses. And you know, But of course, industrial estates are actually filled with new 
company new idea. So the one near us, we've got um, the largest uh, private employer, New England Seafood. We've got massive cloud computing, and you've got people making widgets. And unless we appreciate and value these, the land is being lost. We've lost, I think it was something like 15% of industrial land in London in the last 10 years because it gets nibbled away because nobody's narrating the importance of their store. That's and we need to do it. So the station project is part of reappraising the suburbs. The industrial estate is the green, and we're into we're embarking on what will become London's largest rewilding project. And then alongside that, what it's doing because we've been working in an area called Tolworth, which the evening standard described as the scrag end of the Royal Borough of Kings on Thames. And if you live in the place brought like that you can very quickly develop oh my life has dealt me a, a, a bit of a hand <laughs> but we've been doing work in there and highlighting bits and and suddenly people locally start coming forward with stories and tales that are magical including so there used to be a pub on a roundabout originally designed this is fantastic as what they called a driving pub you drove to it you got drunk you drove home until management worked out they were losing a lot of regulars so you know we need to do, we need to look at this driving concept of pub. the business and model so is not good yeah. <laughs> this is as sustainable as we first believe um but in the late 60s invented itself as part of it a music pub its function room became music pub and in that period Yes, played there, Fleetwood Mac played there, Led Zeppelin played there, Genesis played there. But on the 10th of February in 1972, one man walked onto a stage and changed music, fashion, sexuality and design in an evening. The very first performance of Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie took place in this tiny pub. 60 people at this gig, the start of a revolution. This last year, 50th anniversary... We had a silent disco on the platforms at Waterloo, a special train from Waterloo to Tolworth with entertainment in the carriages, and then a massive gig in the station car park, a new mural. Suddenly, people in an area that are being described as a scrag end are saying, no, 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 we're special. And we've got people saying, weren't you lucky to pick Tolworth? The answer is no. Like people, everywhere is brilliant. Everywhere's got a story. But we are deaf. We don't listen to it. And particularly large institutions and organisations are really poor at hearing and very good at trampling. And somehow we've got to create the situations in which those quieter voices are allowed their chance to say, wait a minute, what about this? Wonderful. Hey, Robin, just talking, working with a few folks in this sector, quite often these movements are created by people as you say, people like you become legendary. You're recognised in the street. Flow of just an just an absolute onslaught of ideas coming out and and ways of doing things. You mentioned this briefly earlier, but you, your goal is not to be the sort of autocrat of a movement. You want to engage others and let everyone write their own words. What conversations do you have to have with yourself about making sure that that is struck right? I suppose the biggest realization is if you want to do a lot, you can't do it. You've got to get others to work with you to achieve a lot. You can do one thing brilliantly, but unless you let go, you'll do one thing brilliantly. Uh, you know, we know it in succession planning of small businesses. The one who's where it's an owner who controls everything, rarely does that business survive them leaving because it's being planned and control. Whereas, you know, we had a 
team meeting yesterday of a combination of volunteers and people who work with me and everybody talking about their projects. And I was sitting listening, thinking, how do we do all this? And I know how we do it all because everybody takes the responsibility of their bit of it. And if they need, so I've always, you know, when I've been in that position of having the office, I've always had the principle come into my office when something's gone wrong or about to go wrong and come into my office. We need to open some champagne because you've done something brilliant. But for 90% of the time, don't come into my office to tell me you're doing your job because that's what you're supposed to do. And I don't think you're doing your job because I expect you to be brilliant at that. But I also expect that you, you will find real joy in the edges of it where you're allowed differently and do. So, you know, I work really as hard as I can to abdicate you know we refer to every project as a baton it must never rest in our hands long enough for us to believe it's ours it must always be allowed to be picked now sometimes that means a project will run in the wrong direction and it won't it won't fly in the same way sometimes they'll take you to a place you'd never imagine i don't think that you know, any project where i've had the idea at the start and it's ended up exactly the same has never been as successful as when people thought, this is it, but I think it's all this other stuff as well. You know, Fusebot, fabulous you know, example of it, we have created this brand new space under a John Lewis in Kingston, uh, which contains the ruins of the first Kingston Bridge, the, the footings of it. We've made this space for young creatives to come and play. What we've done is merely help prepare a canvas. All of the colour, all of the shapes, all of the creativity will come into people who can come in and use that space and make it work. And our job is just to keep allowing people, you know, when we were going through the design process, the desire of designers to, we'll put a wall in here, we'll put a wall, like, no, put no walls in to start. Let use define it. Let's see how people want to, then we can do things. So, you know, you said earlier, you know, these things are about people. How many organizational charts do we study and look at? And we go, oh, yeah, they're just a shape. It's people in those positions. And great organizations recognize those people and give them the freedom to make that shape work. You know, I'm involved in a charity that's going through natural growth. And it's really interesting to watch how the conversations begin to shift into we'll need the chart. And then we'll fit that work. Let's be careful here. Let's look at the people we've got and see the shape that takes and see if it's future-proofed. And if it's not, what do we do to support people to make that model? And let's get them embraced and involved in defining that shape. Because I think, you know, if we're witnessing the world at the moment, what have we learned? Top-down doesn't work. We have got to be more happy in what we do yeah interesting isn't it that's that's really sparked a thought for me robin actually about the sort of yes we've got an organogram we've got an organization chart and now we can see the command structure whereas that ability to let the thing go and see yeah like the building and the walls see what the actual shape of it is and then then see what's required to best coordinate that it's going to be a flatter more distributed thing of all kinds of weird shapes, I imagine. You're going to find strange, strange things we've never seen before. If you can allow yourself to see the shape of the, how it actually works when nature takes its course. I was given a beautiful sentence by somebody, which was projects only speed at the, only run at the speed of trust. 
And it's such a beautiful, and of course, you, you know, all of these things rely on you allowing people to feel trusted in what they do. And that's when you'll get the brilliance because they know you've got that, you've given them that support and that. And that's great, but it does require, you know, the, one of the great assets of being bipolar is clearly mood swings, but also the ability to lie awake all night worrying about stuff. And during the night, I can give you everything that could possibly go wrong in a situation. I can give you chapters. And then I've got to wake up and go put all that fear to one side because people are brilliant. And they'll know all that. They don't need you reminding them that if they do, they'll know that. What they want is the support and confidence to go, but if I try, will you be there? Will you help me? You know, some people, when they come and volunteer with us, want to do the opposite of what their profession is. You know, rarely do you get an accountant volunteer saying, can I do the accounts? Because they're like, I don't want to look at an Excel spreadsheet. Thanks very much. But there are some who do. Designers, for example, quite often want to use their design skills because in the work environment, they're not allowed to do that. So my, you know, quite often we're at a meeting with a designer first thing this morning about an exhibition that we're doing. And I was kind of like, what's the design brief? And I said, well, you tell me. What is it you want to do? And there was a lot of did. I said, well, that sounds great. Let's do that then. Because I'm letting, you know, you're a designer. Why am I now being the designer if you're the designer? All I know is this is what I'd like people to feel when they go in there. This is how it should age. But you can use every, all those ideas you have and you push to the side because no client would say yes to them. And last week we interviewed my nephew who talked about bold choices. And I think that runs through here too. It's just you make choices and then it sets you on a path. So what was it for you that has set you on a, a pretty unique path that is adding so much value? So I am the worst to give careers advice, as you recognise. And I say to everybody, don't be me because it's not fun. You know, I mean, I appear to be fool, glib, da-da-da-da-da, but it comes with shadows. And I'd do anything like for anybody to avoid the shadows. My brain changes quite regularly, so I'll say what today's thesis on how I develop this sort of personality is. And two things stand out. One is that we lived outside of Manchester in a place called Oldham. At the age of six, uh, my father got a new job and we were lifted up and as a family moved down to Kingston. And it was extraordinarily challenging. I don't remember there being any pre-discussion. I'm sure there was, but, you know, as I probably expressed my breath, I work on a need-to-know basis, and at the time all these conversations would have been, okay, and then suddenly I'm dumped in a new school, lost loads of issues around understanding of accent, the novelty of having a northerner. Everything about it was disturbing. And then six months later when we went back to see family, I'd got the reverse there. Suddenly I was posh. I was from the South and I realized that I just didn't fit anywhere anymore. And it, it completely, I think it's, it's at the basis of a lot of what subsequently happened with me is never wanting anybody to feel like that, that there isn't a place for you. And then in 2000 was the revelation of being diagnosed with bipolar, which was the most brilliant thing that could have happened because it explained completely 
as to why I didn't fit. And but sure. I stood on the edge of the world thinking, I don't get this. I just don't fit in any of this. And I developed the act. This is how you can learn to fit in by being this personality. But it's a threadbare suit that you put on and it gets thinner and thinner. And suddenly there was actually, wait a minute, I don't fit. But also, nobody does. We're all desperately trying to work out how to locate ourselves. And if we are defined by the system, then we're always at friction. But if we can begin to define ourselves a little bit more and the situations that we feel better in and are more easy and able to cope with, then we take a bit more ownership in it all. And I think, again, there's something here about helping people take ownership of their lives. But all those things you were told you couldn't do, maybe you can. Maybe it was just somebody on the wrong day saying something to you and you've taken it so badly internally that avenue was shut away from you. So how do you make people reconnect with that? You know, it's, we support a lot of people with startup businesses. And a lot, so we've got two community kitchens. We've got the people come with new business ideas they want to test. And a lot of them fail, but not one of them will go through life going, I wish I'd, because more often than not, they'll come back with a refined idea. But go through life thinking of all the things you wish you'd done would be a tragedy. We've got, you know, this is, this is our go. We've got the dice, we give them a shake. And then we decide how we want to move. And for me, you know, let's hope we land on another double. But if we see somebody sliding down a snake, let's reach out a hand and show them where the ladders are. Because everybody should have a right to that. You know, it's why I, I, you know, I sat on boards and I can remember saying, we need some luck here. And some, I won't name the, the said, you know, we make our own luck. And I was like, we don't. We've got to recognize that the fact that we're on here, I, you know, so many things have happened to me that where I was born, the family support, the opportunities, I'd be some egoist who said, I made all that happen. I didn't happen by accident to be in the right place with the right situation, with the right talents to be able to go, yeah, okay, we'll give that a go. Twice in my life have I tried to actually go on, I'm going to have a career. On both occasions, I've messed up. Because actually, I got to the place I was aiming at and thought, oh, this isn't what I want to do. It's, it's inspiring, Robin. And um, yeah, it, it, I think what you've done is you know, you've recognized your luck, but I think you have used that to bring, make a lot of other people very lucky as well. So, and it's been. It's a generous luck. A gen exactly. You've, you've, you've distributed that. And it's just been heart. Well, it's not even inspiring. It is heartwarming and, uh, gives us hope for humanity when we hear you talking and um so robin thank you so much for joining us today it's um there's so much there for us to all learn from and i will certainly as we kick off ilkley live very soon my own little festival that i'm trying to get going and exactly that trying to enable other people to write their own sentence in it you've uh, you've inspired me personally at the right moment so thank you that's been really sweet and lovely to see you again dan and lovely to meet you pia thank you yeah it's been wonderful You know, I think Robin sets a really high bar for how any leader and any team can 
see the potential of humans to work together to get things done. You know, it's it's impressive. You know, he said everyone should be able to write a sentence for themselves in that story. I thought that was really telling of how he really sees that because it's not just the outcome, you know, Ski Sunday or whatever it is, but actually the engagement with others he knows gives huge value. And people writing that that sentence for themselves is is something I think we could all think about. I do, and I think he sees the connection part quite uniquely, probably from his own experience having, having moved, but how that connection can really make people collectively shine. I think he said uh, everyone can be brilliant rather than grey. Yes, permission to be brilliant. I really like that, actually. So I think he realises his own strengths and his own areas where he's more challenged and he steps aside and creates the space for that. That was another part because you can have somebody that sets the scene and then they can be actually quite overpowering in that scene, whereas he's got the incredible humility to be able to realise where others need to step up. So he sets it and then he quite obviously steps back and that enables multiple projects to happen at the same time. He's got a, an enormous amount on his plate. Yeah, it's it's amazing plate spinning. But as he said, no one's doing everything. You know, if you had said, if you want to do a lot, you can't do it. And, and I thought his thinking about his own awareness or just thinking about his own character and the way he sees that and going back over time and seeing where it came from. But, you know, there's a flip side to this. Um, ability isn't there he mentioned the shadows you know and I know from his social media posts that they are they're they're with him like like our shadows always are you know and I think that's a that in itself is connecting because I think everybody's got those shadows but but either pretends not to have the shadows or or hopes that they're not seen or they keep them quiet whereas I think him actually being really open about it was incredibly powerful because it's just it's just part of humanity that binds us together. That's part of what we all have to wrangle. And we're now getting a language to be able to talk about it. And it's safe to, for everyone to talk about it. It's, this doesn't mean you're anything. It just no. means <laughs> you're dealing with yeah, definitely. things. And that's it. Definitely. And it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we've talked a long, lot of times about sort of the great man fear of leadership and how we, we do tend to hold people on a pedestal, but it doesn't actually do us or them any good if we don't see a hole the hole you know it's um so uh, yeah he's, he's very courageous in sharing that as well as you say coming back to we not me it binds i think that's a really good way of putting at it by seeing the whole person we can connect to that person it's hard to connect to some vision of perfection and i remember once wise words from i can't remember it was some it was some program i did a long time ago talking about if you wanted to build connection how much of a percentage of of yourself did you give? Did you in in, in any relationship? And I thought it was like fifty percent, fifty fifty. That sounded. They said, no. If you only give fifty percent, then the other person will only give fifty percent. You've got to give a hundred. And what I was so impressed by Robin was he gives a hundred. He gives a hundred, even if it probably hurts sometimes. He gives a hundred, and that's. And then you look at what he's created both in his professional life and all these other wacky, wild and fun things that he's created. And that's an incredible legacy. So I, I, I think there's something in there for all of us to think about, you know, how we show up and what we're doing and how, how, how we are and what can be created out of that. 
Be brilliant, not grey. Be brilliant, not grey, and, and uh, give a bit more of ourselves in order to allow others to do the same. But uh, wonderful, wonderful to, to hear from Robin. But that is it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. If you'd like to contribute to the show, just email us at wenotmepod at gmail.com. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.